We're going to be in 1 Peter this morning, and let me pray and we'll get things going here. We'll be talking this morning about an, uh, an honoring defense. Um, let's pray. God, we're, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the guidance that it gives us. But we're thankful mostly that it points us to you, God. That it gives us the information, the things that we need to know to have a firm and sure trust. That there is a reasonableness to the faith that you call us to and the faith that you, in fact, give us, God. And we're thankful as you've charged us with um, giving and honoring defense, God. We're thankful that you are a God worth defending. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> and so, um, this kid, um, a, I was a high school senior when I had this picture taken. I'm giving blood in San Diego. And um, I wanted, you know, I, I, can't, I can't start unless there's a little bit of a chuckle. And so usually putting some goofy picture of me up from when I'm in high school does the trick. And that, that was the one I, I found. Um, but shortly after this picture is taken, I end up going to college. And I go to college. And <clears throat> at some point, I, I remember picking up the phone and I asked my sister, um, is God a capitalist? Because I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I had this idea that there was a God, and, and, I, was, uh, and I was an economics major. And, and so I asked, is God a capitalist? And my sister, who was a Christian, is kind of the God expert. And so some of you are like that in your families, where like, they know you're a Christian, and so when they have questions about God, you're the one they call because you're the God expert. And she was like that in our family, and it started me down this road. And God used these people. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty, I'm, you know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm no dummy. And so um, it was really good for me as part of my process to know that there was a reasonableness to faith. It was really good for me to know, I didn't know this, um, that there was a distinctive, there was something that made Christianity different than every other religion. Because I had always heard, especially, I went to Berkeley. It's a, you know, um, a pretty liberal school if you've not heard of it. And, um, uh, and so I'd always kind of heard, you know, that they're all kind of the same. And so it was good for me to know that there was a distinctive, something unique and different and special about Christianity itself. But then I read this book by C.S. Lewis, um, uh, Mere Christianity. And he's a pretty heady guy. He's a pretty smart guy. And there was something that was really powerful about knowing that really smart guys and women, really smart people could uh, still believe in Jesus. That there was a reasonableness to this faith that we had, um, uh, that, I, you know, that I was in the process of being called into. Um, but I think that's true of a lot of Christians, that we, even as Christians, we, we are not sure that there is a reasonableness to our faith. And if there is, 
Um, it's more experiential. This is what happened in my life. Um, and so Frank Turek, who is a Christian apologist, he says that as a church, we good, do a good job of telling people to have faith. But we don't always do a great job of telling them why that faith is reasonable, why you should have faith. And so when they're confronted with a biology professor who says that science disproves the Bible, or the philosophy professor who says that all truth is relative, or the religious studies professor who says that there are 400,000 manuscript errors in the New Testament, we just don't have the tools to respond to that. And so we find increasingly that people who were active in churches, this especially this youngest generation, um, that are active in churches, they go to college and a lot of them fall away because they're just confronted with these societal pressures because they were taught to believe, but they weren't taught why. They weren't necessarily armed with tools to help them answer some of those challenges. Um, and it's not limited to the academic world and culture. It's hard to find a movie or a television show that doesn't talk about karma in some way, it seems like. In culture, in movies, television, music, among our peers, we're inundated with this idea or ideas that are contrary to biblical faith. We have movies about reincarnated dogs. Um, you know, we have the assumption of macroevolution in our schools. And we have the promotion of this idea that Jesus was just a really good teacher. Um, and that his ideas were perverted by religion. Um, it was Thomas Aquinas who said that reason brings one to the vestibule of faith. And the vestibule is like just the foyer. It's the entryway. I'm here to tell you that our faith uh, is reasonable... Uh, but the Bible also tells us that we are to share the reasonableness of our faith and culture. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17 says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Uh. <clears throat> that word in verse 15, defense, the Greek word is apologia. And so when you hear people talk about Christian apologists or apologetics, it isn't like we're apologizing for our faith. It's just the Greek word is a defense. And so it is a defense of biblical Christianity. And people do that. Um, God not only, and this is what's great about God's word, he not only tells us to give a defense, but he tells us, he gives us some instruction on how to do that. I'd like for us to see three aspects of this defense. The attitude of defense, the nature of the defense, and the result of the defense. Next slide. Um, and the attitude of defense that we are to have is one of confidence. 
Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's a rhetorical question, by the way, meaning that there is no one who can harm you if you're zealous for doing good things. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. And get the next slide. I was at uh, Yosemite. <clears throat> if you remember last year, probably about this time, maybe a little later, we were in, uh, I was at a, um, a teacher, it was like an administrator's conference. We have a school, or we have a school as part of our church. And it was right down the road from Yosemite. And so we skipped a couple of uh, uh, sessions and went and saw Yosemite. Well, at that time, there was huge flooding. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a lot of rain last year, ton of flooding. The valley floor was basically the Merced River. It was just a mess. But it was really pretty at the same time. Um, but we got to this place where we kind of had to hop across this stream to walk this trail. And um, the guys I were with, some of you will know Lance Wallace and Tad Tice, these guys, they just got up and they walked right over. They hopped right over. But me, I was... I'm a little, I'm a little imbalanced <laughs> in a lot of ways, one of them physically, and, um, and so I get up to the edge, and I'm kind of, you know, just kind of trying to measure this jump. I have terrible depth perception, um, and who's the one who stumbles? It's me. I'm like, I'm the one who spent all the time to try to make sure that I was going to get over okay and not end up in the water. And... But I'm the one who falls because the other two just had confidence and they just jumped over. And me, I'm kind of fidgeting. If some of you guys play golf, you have the same thing. If you sit and you fidget over a shot for five, you know, five minutes, rest assured it's going to be a terrible shot. The confidence... Um, we are assured in the text, we're told, have no fear nor be troubled. Um, you know, that there, there are gonna, there's going to be conflict in the Christian life. We're called to be a people who reconcile God to man. Yet that's our ministry of reconciliation. But to some, we're going to be the aroma of life. To some, we're going to be the fragrance of death. Um. There's going to be conflict. But no one can harm you if you are zealous for what is good. And even if you suffer in this lifetime, you will be blessed. And we're given those assurances. Because we're told other places, John 16, 33, I've told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we may have peace, but it doesn't mean that it is going to be without trouble. The good news is the source of our confidence is the sovereignty of God. And it's his desire to use those momentary trials to bless us. Um, that we can have this confidence because we trust him to bless and work these trials for our good. But in order to be blessed, I think we're going to need to have the right motive in our defense. Um, 
And a lot of us have different motives when we go about trying to argue for Jesus. <clears throat> some of us, some of us, the motive is just to win the argument. There are some Christian apologists out there. I, I taught apologetics to our junior hires at the school, and I showed examples of how not to do apologetics. Some Christian apologists, it is their goal to just embarrass the person who is asking the, you know, asking the silly question. And you may win the battle. You can embarrass that college kid who's asking, you know, some ludicrous question. But you're not going to win the war by embarrassing somebody. Your motive probably hadn't ought to be to win the argument. Um, oh, somebody said, I don't know who, it's hard to win an argument with a smart person. It's near impossible to win an argument with a dumb person. We can't control the outcome of these things. So the, the motive of winning the argument is not, it's not a good motive. Um, motive can't be to save souls. Gee, if I had just given a better argument, maybe that person would have come to Jesus. We don't save souls. God brings people to himself. Again, we can't control the outcome. And I used to think this, that my goal, in fact, I used to teach this in junior high. You know what? I just want you guys to think that Christianity is reasonable. I just want you to think that we're not total knuckleheads for believing in Jesus. I think it's a good thing to strive for, but it shouldn't be the goal. Because I can't control how other people think either. No matter how strong an argument I give, it doesn't mean that person on the other side of the table isn't going to say, ah, guy's a knucklehead. Uh, you know, it's just not. All we can do is honor Christ and abandon the outcomes of those conversations to him. And so our sovereignty needs to be our, com our confidence needs to be rooted in that sovereignty of God. The nature of the defense. So if the source of our confidence, so if the source of our defense is confidence, the nature of our defense, or the attitude of defense is confidence, the nature of the defense is to be winsome. Um, to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Who knows the mo uh, the Boy Scouts. Their little motto is always be prepared, right? And that's kind of the way that we're supposed to be too because we don't know when somebody is going to uh, ask us that question or approach us positively or negatively about our faith. Um, I remember once I worked in a job and somebody asked me, they said, why don't you cuss? And I, I, I think I gave some, and I wasn't prepared to use that as a platform to talk about Jesus and those kinds of things. I think I just said something like, well, I guess my vocabulary is big enough. I don't need to. <laughs> um, and they came back to me the next day and they said, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah. And they said, you had such a great opportunity to talk to me about Jesus when I asked that question. He was a Christian too. And you totally blew it. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate, you know, that. But the, but the point was that 
we are always to be prepared. But we're to be prepared in a way that is winsome. To be prepared, it requires practice. It was C.S. Lewis who said, if you want to work on forgiveness, don't start with the Nazis. And so, it's, but his idea was that sometimes we should practice uh, in safe groups, in safe communities. Um, that as, as churches, maybe we should, or as friends, maybe we should practice um, giving a defense, giving the reason for the hope that we have. And sometimes that's a personal expression. Sometimes that's a, um, an argument from absolute truth. But it requires practice so that when those opportunities come, we know how to respond. I guarantee you with the next person who approaches me asks that question, my response will be different because I learned from my mistakes. But it requires practice. It also requires knowledge. We have to do some homework. Um, and it requires sensitivity, knowing how and when to give certain defenses. I remember once being at a youth retreat and some poor high school kid made some comment about... Um, well, I believe in evolution. Can I still be a Christian? I hope you know the answer to that question is yes. Um, but this youth leader that I was with took that opportunity to just bludgeon this person because they believed in evolution. And there's a sensitivity to the spirit to know how and when to give certain defenses. I can't believe that that poor high school student, who I never saw again after that trip, um, I can't believe they walked away going, wow, that is a, that is a God worth believing in. Um, so you always have to be prepared. Um, and we're called to give this defense. And defense, apologia, is just another word for an argument. And not an argument and a pointing fingers and being a jerk kind of a way, but just to be able to state your case, to understand that there is a counter perspective, and to be able to argue your side of things to anyone who asks you. And that means that there is no one who is too good or too bad to hear a defense. Um, you know, we do sometimes talk about um, pearls before swine. Had you known Paul prior to Damascus, you would have said, that guy's swine. Don't waste your time, right? He was the most zealous, one of the most zealous persecutor of Christians. If ever there was a person who was beyond redemption, it was Paul. We don't know who's beyond redemption. Everyone is... Um, deserving of hearing a defense. Because everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone, though warped, has inherent value in the eyes of God, and everyone deserves that. Um, and they deserve a respect irrespective of their motives. And I, I'll watch this. If you, if you watch videos, one of my favorite Christian apologists is Ravi Zacharias. Because people will go up and they will say the most condescending, obnoxious things to this guy. 
And he just smiles. He'll tell a little joke. I'm glad you're here. You know, and he does. Um, that their goal in asking questions is to humiliate him, is to prove him wrong. But his... Um, but his job is to honor God. His job isn't to preserve his own pride or to jump or lash out or embarrass this person who's trying to make him look bad. And so he tends to be honoring of this idea that everyone deserves to hear that defense. Whatever their motive in approaching you. And it says, give it defense to anyone who asks for the reason you have. Um, for a reason for the hope that is in you. And that reason means that it should be supportable. You, there's a reason you have hope. It should be supportable. Um, I'm not doing very good in telling these guys to keep up with slides. That's my fault. Um, there should be a reason. Now, for a lot of us, personal experience feeds into that, right? That I am a miracle. That God took my heart that was dead, and he made it alive. He took me, who was a child of wrath, and made him, and made me a child of God. That God took this guy who was uh, the most introverted person in the world and still is uh, and and made him a pastor who deals with people all day that god my personal story is one of um certainty that god exists I could not be me without him. And I am a miracle as I stand before you. And I think as believers, hopefully every one of you have a, have a similar story. Um, but sometimes personal experience isn't enough. In seminary, I had a seminary professor who said, um, said, just wait until you encounter someone whose life has been powerfully changed by another religion. When I say I believe in God because of the things he did in my life, and they say, well, my life was powerfully changed by Islam. If you watch, um, if you watch Malcolm X or read the autobiography of, Mountain, of Malcolm X, you'll see that his life was powerfully changed by Islam. But he's, unless he, on his deathbed, made some kind of a confession to Christ... His life was powerfully changed this side of eternity, but his outcome was not positively changed on the other side. Um, we live in a culture that says, hey, I'm glad that worked for you. I'm glad that Christianity works for you. My story's different. Um, that in addition to our personal story, sometimes we just have to have a logical support for a biblical worldview. Um, and that's okay. For instance, 
we live in a world that says that science and evolution have disproved the Bible. You'll hear that, by the way. When you watch Christian apologists in their question and answer time, you'll hear people say, given that science has disproved the Bible, how do you reconcile truth with your Christian faith? And the reality is that's just not true. Um, but it is an assumption in culture. Says Michael Crichton, who's not a Christian, by the way. Historically, the claim of consensus has been the first refuge of scoundrels. It is a way to avoid debate by claiming that the matter has already been settled. There is no proof that the Bible doesn't exist. Certainly not in science. Or that the, that the Bible is inaccurate. Certainly not in science. Um, but I see on television shows, I hear it in culture, I don't believe in faith, I believe in science. That's not true. There's a reason Frank Turek's book is uh, titled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It takes a great deal of faith to believe in evolution, Uh, certainly uh, an evolution without God, because you cannot use observational science to prove it. Right? We can't put a test in a lab and, um, and repeat what has happened to spring life into, bring the life forms into being that we have on Earth. You simply can't do it because, from an evolutionary perspective, they say it takes billions and billions of years. We don't have that kind of time, right? So you have to make at very best assumptions, which requires faith. But To believe that all of life came into being without God, as we understand it, you have to believe, one, that something arose from nothing out of purely naturalistic causes. You think about it. When I look at the chair that you all are sitting in, I'd have to believe that that chair just sprung into being out of nowhere without the materials, without the people, without the design... Um, That's just not, um, that's a huge assumption, right? And And not a reasonable one. You have to believe that order arose out of chaos from purely natural causes. That our universe is so incredibly fine tuned um that if the earth were tilted just a little bit closer, a little bit, uh, were tilted just a little bit different, we'd either freeze or burn. If the universe were expanding at a rate that were just a little bit faster, a little bit slower, we'd either explode out of control or completely contract onto itself. Um, That there are incredible measures of fine-tuning that are required to provide human life. Some people even look at the place of the earth and the universe as being the ideal place from which to explore. That we are incredibly fine-tuned. And to argue that that happened without a fine-tuner is, requires a great deal of faith. We have to believe that our life arose from non-life, from purely natural causes, uh, including intelligence. Sometimes it doesn't feel this way, but as people, we're intelligent beings. That had to arise out of non-intelligence. And personality, we all have personalities. That had to arise out of something without personality. Think about the faith that that requires. Um, 
And we have to believe that new life forms spring from existing life forms, despite the fact that there are genetic limits, that there is no known process by which genetic information can be added to an organism's genetic code. Um, there's this thing called irreducible complexity. And if you know anything about evolution, it says that it's a, it's a, it's a number of very small incremental changes that, res, um, that, re, that benefit the, the creature. And because of those changes benefiting the creature, that mutation perpetuates itself. Well, there's this thing called irreducible complexity that says, you know what, if I have... If I have four pieces of a rat trap, and I need five, the other four are worthless without the fifth piece. And you see this all over nature, that there are these genetic benefits that creatures have that require five, six, sometimes 13, 15 parts, and the other 12 are worthless without that 13th part. It doesn't work in an evolutionary model. Um, and a fossil record that um, lacks transitional species. Um, it was um, <clears throat> Darwin himself who said there are two things that can destroy the idea of evolution. The first one is irreducible complexity, and the other one is the lack of, uh, the lack of uh, transitional species in the fossil record. Well, guess what? We're two for two. I had, um, I had uh, coffee with a... Uh, he's a guy who's studying for his doctorate in... Um, oh, I think it's, it's either biomechanics or microbiology at Harvard. And so he's a real smart, heady guy. And I asked him, I just want to be. I just want to have fidelity to the truth when I talk about evolution, things like that. He's clearly a proponent of evolution, and so, so he was more than happy to sit down and have coffee with him. And I asked him the question. I said, "Have you ever taken non-life and made life out of it?" He said, "No." I said, "Have you ever seen macroevolutionary changes?" And by macroevolution, I mean have you seen changes that go from a small, like go from one species to another species? In Genesis, it talks about creating according to their kind. Have you seen that kind of a transition? He said, well, no, but we've seen macroevolutionary changes in microorganisms, which is a way of saying we've seen microevolution, which nobody disproves or nobody argues is not happening, but we've never seen macroevolution. And so I just looked at him. I said, you know what? Creationists and intelligent design scientists deserve a seat at the table until you can do one of those two things. And, um, you know, and he was just quiet. And hopefully that allowed him to think. I wasn't there to win an argument with him, but I, uh, but I did want him to think a little bit. And I want you to understand as well in your schools, in your workplaces, when you watch television, that... <clears throat> um, in the evolutionary community, they acknowledge these things. It isn't something that you're going to read in your science textbooks, but they acknowledge these things. And hopefully you can at least have confidence when you hear that this stuff is absolutely true, that maybe it's not. Um, we hear um, that truth is subjective. 
that what's true for you may not be true for me. Um, that you can't impose your morals on me because your truth is different than mine. Um, that there is the definition of subjective morality is the view that when it comes to moral issues, there are no universally objective right or wrong answers, no inappropriate or appropriate judgments, and no reasonable or rational ways by which to make moral distinctions that apply in every time, every place, and every person. And you hear this in your universities, by the way. You hear this in television. You see this in your movies. That truth is subjective. Which does make the fake, fake news um, issue kind of, kind of humorous. Um, because it does take to its logical conclusion the idea that truth is subjective. Uh, we have to believe that Hitler was no better or worse a person than Mother Teresa. If truth is subjective. Um, and we also hear that Jesus is a good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis, who I referenced earlier, uh, makes a really good point about this. He says, I'm trying to prevent here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man that said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That Christ is God, a lunatic, or a monster from hell. But he is not a great moral teacher. And that's it. Uh, reasons that we can have faith. That the resurrection is a historical event. Lee Strobel cites four E's of the resurrection. Um, the fact that Jesus was executed is a historical fact. Non-Christian sources confirm that. Christian sources obviously confirm it. There are early accounts. Within the time of Jesus' life, the resurrection account was given, and accounts include embarrassing details and verifiable statements. If I were going to make up a story about Jesus' resurrection, um, would I say that women were the first people to see uh, the resurrected Christ? In a culture in which the testimony of women was not uh, seen as valid? Of course not. I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm saying that's the way the culture was. Um, but if, if I were making up a story about a resurrected God, I would have the first people who saw him be people whose testimony would be considered valid. But that's not what we see in Scripture. If I were making up stories about the, the Passion Week and the crucifixion and the resurrection, I wouldn't have me cowering in fear or running away and hiding, right? 
I wouldn't do things and say things that I, I wouldn't tell stories that have me denying Christ three times if I were making this stuff up. Um, we have an empty tomb. If in the earliest moments of Christianity, just one person under threat of death, losing their job, losing their families, had said, hey, wait, this is ridiculous. The body's there. All of Christianity dies, right? But nobody was ever able to produce a body. The tomb, and those and people were confronted with those things. People did die. Yet no one was able to produce that body. And there were eyewitnesses. <clears throat> it's not surprising that 40 days after Jesus' ascension, just mere days, mere months after his resurrection, Peter says, these people, who, this person who you crucified was resurrected. And the people don't go, oh, this guy's a nuts. Not they go, you're right. What must we do to be saved? Thousands of people in Jerusalem, many of whom were there to experience these events, come to Christ. Um, we have eyewitnesses. And the actions, the things that happened in the church, are consistent with what would have happened had Jesus been resurrected, right? He says, for the hope that is in you. You go to the next slide. The gospel is good news. You guys were, do you guys believe that this morning? Amen. I hope so. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Um, sometimes, you know, I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by grace, which is true, right? There's not a lot of joy in that if that's where your story stops. Um, that we are children of God. We have passed from death to life. We're to live lives that are abundant because the, the fundamental questions that people wrestle with, where did I come from? What am I here for? And where am I going? Nobody else has those questions answered. Because everybody else... Um, I watched MacArthur in a video, and he says, and he's right. There are basically two religions. One says you can do something to get to heaven, and the other says you can do nothing to get to heaven. And for those people who say you can do something to get to heaven, they have no assurance of where they're going. Because none of those religions have this line that you cross at which it's, oh, I've done enough, I'm good. They all say you can do enough, but they don't tell you where the line is. I don't know what enough is. The one possible exception is Islam, where if you die in battle, they say you get an automatic ticket in. But even then, you have to wrestle with, you know, am I doing this for the right reasons? Is this really a battle? Um, you know, we do have this great hope because we have the questions answered that people have been seeking to answer for centuries, for, since there have been people. Since the fall. Um, that we have restored what was lost to us in the fall. You think about that? We lost our security. 
We had to go fend for ourselves when God was taking care of us before. We lost our identity. We were children of God. Now I've got to find my identity in something else. Um, you know, we, were, we, lost, um, we lost relationship. That before, my relationship was rooted in God and other people. Now, I'm all about myself. And somehow in that, I've got to try to figure out how to coexist with other people. We lost all that stuff. And so people are still wrestling with those issues. But we had those things restored to us through the person of Christ. Ours is good news. And people should see that hope within us. They should see the difference in our lives so that when we say the words, they have power. Our goal should be to introduce people to the hope that we have, not to embarrass them, not merely to convince people that Christianity is reasonable, but so that they might have the same hope. And that's why we're to do it with gentleness and respect. I think it's the next slide. Uh, Regardless of how we're questioned, regardless of the acceptance of our defense with people, if that person walks away and goes, ah, it's a nut. Nothing I can do about that. I should still be gentle and treat people with respect because they bear the image of God. And because God may not be done with them yet. William Fay says that it typically, and he's a well-known evangelist, he says it typically takes someone about seven times to hear the gospel before it really sinks in and they respond to it. Well, you might be time one or time four or time six. You don't know what God's going to do with your words. So treat people with gentleness and respect. And the the result of that defense, next slide, um, is blessing. It says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Part of that blessing is I can have a good conscience. I can't control somebody else's response, but I can control whether I speak or not. I can control the nature of my defense. I can control whether or not I do it with gentleness and respect. I can have a good conscience. If somebody says I'm a knucklehead, I can't believe you believe that silliness. I can have a good conscience. And it says, furthermore, those who revile you will be shamed. Some people will be shamed this side of heaven. And like I said, I, heck, I kind of blew it. Next day, this guy's like, you Christian? Why didn't you, you know? I'm like, that's, that's, that shame happened a little earlier than bowing before the feet of Jesus, thank goodness. But um, one, way or the, uh, one way or the other, God will judge. Sometimes it's going to be in this world. Sometimes it's going to be at the judgment seat. But God will judge. And those who revile you will be shamed. And that may sound hard. may sound like, you know... I, why would I want that for anybody? Um, and and I'd, I'd love for people to be shamed this side of eternity and see him come to Christ, but I do know this, God's just, and he will take care of the people who seek to revile you. And we get the better outcome. Even if we suffer, we will be blessed. 
Uh, And we have as our example Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That we participate with Christ in his sufferings and we participate with Christ in his work. And for that, we get the better outcome and we are blessed. Um, And so I would encourage you um, to have a confidence. I would encourage you uh, to understand that there is a blessing that comes from doing the work um, of being an apologist. Let me pray. God, we are thankful that our faith is reasonable. We are thankful that um, there is no belief system that does not require faith. And ours, though it requires faith, is the most reasonable. We're thankful for that. We're thankful that you give us the tools and you give us a roadmap to be winsome, to be purposed, to be confident, and to be blessed, God. We pray you would bless us this morning as we close our time of worship and pray you would would speak powerfully through us as we seek to give a defense, a reason for the hope that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.